rejoice. Do you know what it means to rejoice yet? Have you memorized that definition we put together? Who thinks they have it? You're scared to say, aren't you? Because you're thinking, he's going to ask me to say it. Let's try to say it together. Well, what does it mean to rejoice? Rejoice means to dwell on God's grace and let it define my life, reveling in it, because it supersedes any and every other thing. Let's try that again. It's right on the screen, I think, for you. To rejoice means to dwell on God's grace and let it define my life, reveling in it, because it supersedes any and every other thing. To dwell on God's grace, to think about his undeserved favor toward me, his undeserved love toward me, to dwell on it, to think about it, so much so that it defines who I am. That, that all my interactions with people, even though I'm sinful and there's times where my interactions with people are not defined by God's grace. Anybody else fall into that category? Just me. Yeah. But, but, but letting it slowly define my life over time and, and reveling in it, just, just, just sitting in it and, and enjoying God's pleasure toward me because of his son, Jesus Christ. Sometimes that's reveling. Sometimes reveling is dancing and singing and celebrating. Because that's the most important thing is is eternity. As we're going to see Paul say this morning, to live is Christ. His grace, God's grace to me through Jesus Christ supersedes any and every other thing. Any and every other thing. Do you believe that? Let's by faith look at that this morning. Okay? Okay. With the goal that by, by letting God's grace define my life, I would truly, from my heart, in, in any and every situation, we'll see Paul say later, I would just be able to, as he says here, to say to live is Christ. To live is Christ. Let's pray. Father, thanks for Jesus. And thank you for his grace to us. Father, I, I thank you that uh, you love me because of what Jesus has done, not based on my own merit. I fall short all the time, all the time. And so I thank you for what Jesus has done on the cross for me. I thank you for his his grace then to me in that, giving me his life, taking my sin and, and making me new, conforming me into his image. Holy Spirit, I pray this morning uh, that you would uh, uh, speak to me and through me as I, as I teach your word. Um, I pray you call my heart as well. Just, uh, just kind of anxious this morning. And, uh, so I pray you'd, you'd call my heart. You'd, you'd make my words your own and you'd speak to and through me, even as I teach, uh, your words to, uh, to our people. And father, I pray too against the enemy, his servants, their works and effects. He would love nothing more than to take your word and, um, twist it, use it instead of to edify and encourage us to accuse us and, uh, to throw accusation and, at us and and even to tempt us. But instead, Holy Spirit, would you work in such a way that you would um, give us the mind and heart uh, in the same measure that you gave it to Paul, that for us to live would be Jesus, to die would be gain, and that that all of, of what we do and who we are would be rejoicing in your grace, letting it define us so that we could do ministry and care for other people. Father, we love you. I love you. I thank you, though, that you love me first in Jesus. I pray all this through him. Amen. We're in Philippians, as I mentioned. 
And specifically in chapter 1, we're going to be in verse starting in the end of verse 18 this morning. Uh, Last week we saw Paul rejoicing in the midst of really hard circumstances, and those circumstances haven't changed for him. But, but we saw him in the midst of really hard circumstances rejoicing and seeing it all as something that would advance the gospel. That God was using what was going on in his life even then, even when it made zero sense maybe to the people he was writing to. He said, no, it does make sense when you look at it in view of eternity because God's using this to advance the gospel. Well, he continues writing this morning. He ends that, that passage last week with, and in this I rejoice. And he repeats himself right as we start this morning in the end of verse 18. He says, yes, and I will rejoice. That sounds like a choice, doesn't it? Sounds like Paul's saying, hey, you know what? I agree, this stinks, but I will rejoice. I will. I'm choosing it. I'm choosing to dwell on God's grace. I'm choosing to let it define me. I'm choosing to just revel in it. And I'm choosing it because it supersedes any and every other thing. Yes, I will rejoice. For I know, Paul says, that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, that this will turn out for my deliverance. He's speaking of a situation, of his circumstances that we talked about last week, that he's been falsely accused, he's been drugged through the courts, he's been uh, drugged across land and sea to get to house arrest in Rome. He goes, this will turn out for my deliverance as it's my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, Paul says, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to me, Paul says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, this means fruitful labor labor for me. Yet, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that's far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I'll remain and I'll continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. It's the word of the Lord. Well, I would submit to you a handful of things that we see from Paul this morning in this passage of what it looks like when grace defines my life. Because rejoicing means I'm choosing to dwell on God's grace and I'm choosing to let that be the thing that defines who I am. And when it is, the first thing I see, the first thing I see about Paul's life is when God's grace defines my life, my goal is to always make Jesus look great. My goal with my life, when grace defines my life, when I realize I have undeserved love and undeserved favor from God, is that my goal all the time is that Jesus would be made to look great in all that I do and all that I say and all that I think and all that fill in the blank. Now, is that the case all the time? No, because I sin and I fail. But then I repent and I move forward and I keep moving toward that goal of God's grace defining me in such a way that in everything Jesus is made to look great. See, here's what Paul says. He says, yes, I will rejoice 
For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. He goes on in verse 20, he says, It's my eager expectation and hope that I will not be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or death. His desire was, whether it's life or death, Jesus would be honored in who I am. Because he's, he's in prison, right? He's facing a trial. At the end of that trial, one or two things is going to happen. He's either going to be freed and he's going to have more life of ministry, or he's going to be convicted and then what? Put to death. And he says, you know what my goal is? My goal is that in what, whatever comes... Jesus would be honored. Jesus would be made to look great. That you wouldn't look at me and go, well, Paul's a cool guy. No, you'd look at me and you'd say, look, that's Jesus in Paul. When when grace defines my life, I image God more clearly. I image Jesus more perfectly because everything I'm doing is, is reflecting Jesus. I'm honoring him. I'm magnifying him. That's what honoring means there. That word is like to, to magnify now, when I think of magnify, you can think of a couple different things, right? You can think of a magnifying glass where you, you put it over top of something and you make it huge. My grandma used to have a magnifying glass, my great-grandma, my great-grandma Sadie. And we'd play with it all the time. You know where we usually played with it? On the front porch with the ants. And you, t- you took it out, you know, and you, you'd magnify it. You could see the ant, but then it would, it would focus the light on it. But instead of just that, making something small look big like a magnifying glass would... You know what else magnifies things? A telescope does. But what's a telescope do? It doesn't make what's small look big. It makes what's big look big. Because I see it as small off in the distance. But when I look through the telescope, what do I see? I see it for what it really is. I see it as huge, as glorious, as magnificent parts of God's creation. A lot of people... A lot of people see Jesus as small and tiny and far off in the distance. But your life could be like a telescope to them. To where when they see you, it's like looking through a telescope. And now instead of Jesus just being this little speck in the sky, way off in the distance, they look at you and through the telescope, they see Jesus for who he really is. That's making him honored in in my life, whether by life or by death. That's making Jesus look great in everything that I do. That's what Paul means when he talks about Jesus being honored. But what does he mean if we back up a little bit in verse 19 where he says, I know that through your prayers and through the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. At first you might read that, and and I might read that, and I do read that. And my first initial gut thing, if I'm just reading it at face value, I go, oh, he's thinking about getting out of prison. He's thinking... Um, You know, this will turn out, I'm going to be tried, I'm going to be found innocent, I'll be delivered, I'll be set free. Some scholars think that is the case. I I disagree with those scholars, though, even though they're smarter than me, I still disagree with them. Paul says, though, see, here's the deal, later in the chapter, in verse 27 or 28, he uses the same word. You can look ahead where he talks about deliverance or salvation. Um, But he uses the exact same word. And in that case, he uses that same Greek word referring to his eternal deliverance, his eternal salvation. 
And I think that's what he has in mind here. In fact, do you realize that the the phrase he uses here is actually him quoting the book of Job? Job says this exact same phrase. He said the same thing in the midst of his suffering. He was a righteous guy, just just like Paul. He was a righteous man, and yet he was suffering. And here's what Job writes in Job chapter 13, verses 15 and 16. He says this of God. He says, though he slay me, I will hope in him, yet I will argue my ways to his face. And here it is. This will be my salvation. Job's sight was toward his salvation before God. And Paul's writing, and if you, if you could see the language in, in the original language, how it's written, he, he's literally quoting exactly what Job said. So, so I believe the Holy Spirit is bringing the words of Scripture to Paul's mind as he's writing what would become Scripture for us. And he's quoting the Old Testament. Why? He's quoting what, would, what was in his mind that ultimately this is going to work out for my salvation, for my deliverance. It, it might mean my deliverance here on earth, but ultimately, ultimately this is going to work out for my salvation. Before God, it's going to work out for good. Literally, it's this will turn out for my salvation. I think he's quoting Job. And he goes on. Look what he says, though, before that. He says, for I know that through your prayers, I know this will turn out for my deliverance. The idea there where he says, I know, it implies confidence. Not just, yeah, I, I, I know that's going to happen. I know, I'm... I think, you know, it's not I think, it's I know. It's confidence this is going to happen. It's, it's, it, it implies, this word implies I, I know for sure. I know, it could even, I know from experience. What experience? Well, every other time that Paul had seen God, we talked about it last week, right? When you, you see God's leading, not a lot of times in the windshield, but in the rearview mirror. And Paul says, Every other time he's worked it out for good. Every other time. Why wouldn't he this time? I know this will work out for my deliverance. Even if it's not on this earth, it'll be good. God's good. It will. And this thing he's talking about, obviously, this is imprisonment. Well, he goes on in verse 20. Actually, before we go to verse 20, let's stick in 19 for a second. He says, I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Is it encouraging to you like it is to me that the Apostle Paul was a guy who asked for prayer? He he wanted people to pray for him. He needed people to pray for him. That's incredible. And he says, I know that through your prayers and the spirit of Christ Jesus, the spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Through those two things, prayer and the Holy Spirit. You know, I mentioned earlier as we got started and as as I prayed, that we have the same resources available to us that Paul had available to him to live the Christian life. In fact, you have the exact same resources available to you that every other faithful believer in the New Testament had available to them. 
In fact, you have the same resources available to you that Jesus Christ had available to him as he lived his life on this earth. You do. You know what they were? There's three. We see two of them here. We see three of them here, actually. First one is prayer. You can pray. What's prayer? Prayer is talking to God. It's talking to your creator. Do you spend time in prayer? Like, I don't know. I don't, I don't spend like an hour. Yeah, but even just throughout the day, do you spend time talking to him as your friend, as your helper, for guidance? Prayer is one. Jesus prayed all the time. Paul prayed all the time. Jesus, in fact, when you couldn't find him, you know where he usually was? Where the disciples almost always found him? Praying. You know what you and I can do? We can pray like Jesus and like Paul. The second thing they both had available to them. We see it right here. Paul says, I know this will turn out for my deliverance. He says, but I know because of your prayers and because of the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ. Paul refers to the Holy Spirit sometimes. Uh, this is unique, I think, here where he says the help of the Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus Christ. But other times he says the Spirit of Jesus. He says the Spirit of the Son. He calls the Holy Spirit the Spirit of God. Um, but through the help of the Holy Spirit. You have the Holy Spirit if you're a believer. If you've trusted Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit has come and taken residence within you. He's made you a new creation. You're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And you can live by the power of the Holy Spirit, the Christian life. You're like, what do you mean Jesus had the Holy Spirit, though? If, if Jesus had these resources, well, I've shared this with you before, but let's just review. Jesus was perfectly without sin, right? He was also 100% God and 100% what? Man. He was totally human in every way, except for the fact that he never sinned. He was totally human, Perfectly, just like Adam and Eve were before they had sinned. Now, when Jesus comes to live the Christian life, he, it, John tells us he puts on flesh. He becomes incarnate. Like when you go out to eat and you get the carne asada with meat, right? He, he put meat on his, on his bones. He came and lived in the flesh. He, he lived. But when he did that, when he lived totally as a man, I believe, well, we'll see it later, even in this book, later this summer, that that he lived totally as a man. It's like he, he veiled his deity. He, he, never, he never pulled out the God card and lived from his deity while he lived as a human being. If he had done that, how could his sacrifice have been perfect for us if, if he did it in some way that, that a human being could never do it? No, he, is, he lived fully in the flesh, fully as a man. And... and when you see Jesus do miracles, when you see him do incredible things, when you see him heal people, I believe what's happening there is that the Holy Spirit is working through Jesus. That's the work of the Holy Spirit through the man, Jesus, on this earth. Now, the Holy Spirit, what's unique about Jesus compared to us is Jesus had no sin. Jesus had no sin. So it's kind of like if you, you run a faucet and you take the filter off, you get, a, you get a faster flow, don't you? There's nothing clogging it. You put something in there, your pipes get junked up, and it just kind of trickles out. Well, because we're sinful, there's a certain sense in which we quench the Spirit of God working in and through us. 
Jesus had no sin. To, he had perfect relationship with the Father, perfect relationship with the Spirit. That's why his death was so agonizing. When he says, Father, why have you forsaken me? He had never experienced separation from the Father before. So Jesus lives the perfect Christian life by the power of the Holy Spirit. And you have that same Spirit living in you if you're a follower of Jesus. So two out of three so far, right? You have prayer. You have the power of the Holy Spirit. Or as Paul calls it, the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. The third thing you have is God's word. Jesus used God's word over and over and over throughout his life. Paul uses God's word. In fact, he ends up writing most of the, or a large portion of the New Testament. You have God's word to help you. You have prayer where you talk to God. You have the Holy Spirit living in and through you so you can live out what God's word tells you. And you, you can hear from God through his word. You have the same three resources. You go, how did Paul choose joy? How did Paul let God's grace define his life? Well, prayer, Holy Spirit, and the word of God. We have the same resources available to us. He goes on, he says, it's my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. The phrase eager expectation, this word is a single word in the original Greek. And it's very rare. And a lot of people think maybe this is one of those words Paul just made up. That he came up with. The only other time it's used in the New Testament is in Romans 8.19 where Paul says that all of creation waits with eager, eager longing for its final salvation at Jesus' return. It implies this intense desire to, to catch sight of something. To see something. This intense longing for something, it, waiting with, with open hands, just waiting, just waiting. I, I thought of this again. I saw some of the highlights ahead of time before the, the Mayweather-Pacquiao fight over the weekend, right? And they had the wig weigh-in on Thursday or Friday. And like 10,000 people showed up to watch two guys stand on a scale. They had eager expectation. Eager expectation for the fight. Do you have eager expectation for God's grace to work through you? Paul says his eager expectation and his hope is that he would never, not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage. See, see Paul says, I know through your prayers. And then what's he talk about? What type, what, what they pray for? Well, you, you think he might say, you know, because I know you're going to pray for me to get out of jail. And I know I'm going to get out of jail. I know that's what's going to happen. Is that what he says? Does he pray? I know you're going to pray that my, my suffering uh, would just be minimal and, and life will be great. Does he say that? No. Do you think he probably hopes people would pray that, though? And I would guess that people did pray that. And those are good things to pray for because they love Paul. But his big request is not just that these temporal things would happen. It's that he would have courage. That he would face his death with courage that he would face his trial with courage. He says, even now as always. What he's saying is, even in the midst of this, just like always, man, pray that I have courage, that I wouldn't be ashamed, that I'd make it to the end. 
When you pray for people, do you just pray for their comfort? When you pray in your 110 group, do you just pray for their healing? I hope you pray for those things. Those are good things to pray for. In fact, James tells us that, that when you're sick, you should, you should go to the elders, ask them to pray. You might be healed. It's a good thing to pray for those who are sick. It is. But it's also good to pray not just that they'd be healed because they may not be, but that they would make it to the end faithfully. That they'd be faithful to Jesus Christ, that they wouldn't be ashamed. That now as always, they'd live lives with full courage. When God's grace defines my life, my goal is to always make Jesus look great. That was clearly the example of Paul. But also, when God's grace defines my life, to live is Christ. When God's grace defines my life, to live is Christ. See, look what Paul says. He he, he ends verse 20. He says, it's my eager expectation. He says that now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. What's he say right there? Verse 21, for to me, to live is Christ. For me to live is Christ. How would you fill in that blank? For you, to live is what? You know what Paul's kind of doing here? He's kind of saying, he's kind of answering the question, what's the meaning of life? Well, to me, Paul says it's Christ. He had, he had no understanding of what it meant to live life apart from Jesus. Life had no meaning to him apart from Jesus Christ. That's where his focus was. That, that's, that's, that's where his eyes were set all the time. That was all by God's grace, though, because I think there's also times probably where Paul was still sinful. He still would have turned. He still would have had doubts. Yet he'd get himself refocused to live is Christ. What is it to you? How would you fill in that blank? To me, to live is baseball. For me, to live is the Cubs. You know how to suffer. For me, to to live is farming. For me, to live is my job. For me, to live is my kids. For me, to live is pleasing people. For me, to live, what do you fill in the blank with? What is it to you to live? What is it to you? Paul says, for me to live is Christ. And that's the most accurate answer you could ever give. But sadly, if you're like me, there's times in my life where, where I fail that way. And the desire of my heart strays. Like the hymn goes, prone to wander. I feel it. Do you? Yet redirecting, repenting, turning my mind back to Jesus Christ. To live is Christ. Look what Paul says. He goes on. He says, if I'm to live in the flesh, this means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. For my desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that's far better. But he says, to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. 
Convinced of this, I know I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in time, so that in me, excuse me, you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Paul says, For me to live is Christ. As I see it, life is all about Jesus. He he says something very similar in Galatians 2.20. For I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh is by faith in the Son of God who loves me and delivered himself for me. Sounds like God's grace, doesn't it? It is. His life was defined by it. For him to live is Christ. Where's your focus? Where's your mind? Where's your heart? In saying this, does it mean that other interests of ours are wrong? See, because if I wanted to, I could probably just press the issue here and I could bring out the big stick and I could make you feel really guilty for having other things that you love and are interested in and care about. I could say, oh, that's nothing compared to Jesus. Smack. I'd quote Bible verses to you about it. And I could be a Bible thumper and thump you on the head with my Bible. Would that be helpful? And would it be accurate? No. I mean, God has put desires and passions and interests into your heart, into the way that he shaped you and made you. Because he wants you to enjoy them. He wants you to enjoy his creation. But he wants you to enjoy them in light of the fact that the greatest thing, the greatest gift, the greatest treasure is Jesus, not the creation. The greatest thing is the creator, Jesus himself. And to live is Christ. So that when I love baseball, I can love baseball and I can go, you know what? Baseball is great. But it pales in comparison to Jesus. So when I love baseball, when I play baseball, when I think about baseball, I I might do those things to the best of my ability so that I'd be like a telescope and Jesus would be made to look great in the way that I go about this activity. When I care for my kids, my kids, man, man, when when you have children, I know your life totally changes, right? And things get busy and it's, it's exhausting. I've talked to so many of you. It's exhausting. However, don't let them become the little idols that run your life. If, if you would say that for to me to live is my kids and my schedule and everything I do is run by my children, guess what? There's the center of the universe. Everything revolves around them. They're the idol. They're made to be God. No. They're a great thing. They're a treasure. They're a gift from the Lord, but they're from Jesus. And I'm turning them to say, you know what? I love you guys. Jesus is life. Chase after him. And I'm pointing them to Jesus. What other interests do you have? I mean, we could go on and on, couldn't we? Lots of really good things God has given us and created for us to enjoy. But enjoy them in light of the fact that Jesus is first. Jesus is my first love. And that first love influences every other love. And when I get those out of order, that's when life seems to spiral. That's when it's hard for me to rejoice because God's grace in Jesus Christ isn't defining my life, but my happenings are and whatever other thing that I give too much worth to.
Well, Paul says not only that to live is Christ, but that to die is gain. When God's grace defines my life, to die is gain. How could that be? Many of you know people. There's people in our church who are who are incredibly sick right now and suffering and, and maybe maybe will depart to be with the Lord soon. Many of you have had loved ones and friends and others who've who've gone through incredible illness or incredible suffering or, or other things and you've you've seen them come to this point and boy to die is gain for them, but man, it's hard for me. And others of us, especially those who don't know Jesus, you, you, look at, you look at death and you go, I don't know what's waiting on the other side. And it's a really fearful thing. And I don't want to leave the things I love. I don't, I don't want to leave the people I love. And well, I think the only way you can say that to die is gain is if to live is Christ. The only way I can see death is gain is if Jesus is my life. And so I'm not, I'm not leaving anything. I'm leaving some things I love and some people I love, but ultimately I'm going to what's best. And to die is gain. What is death for you? Is death losing what you treasure most or is it gaining what you treasure most? For Paul, death was gaining what he treasured most. But for many of us, death is oftentimes looked at as losing what I value most rather than gaining what I value most. The only way I can say death is gain and face it without fear is if I know Jesus Christ is my life. And that's how Paul can ask them to pray Not just that his suffering would end, but that he would endure it with full courage to the end. So that that he would, with an eager expectation, that an incredible hope that he would never in any way be ashamed. But he lived with full courage, making Jesus look great, whether in life or in death. Because to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's all about Jesus, is what Paul's saying. He gives a little commentary then about his struggle thinking about these things. You know, he says, if, if I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. It means fruitful labor. He goes on in verse 25, convinced of this, I know I'll remain. I'll continue with you for your progress and your joy in the faith. You know what that tells me, Paul's saying here and what God's word says? As long as I'm breathing, one of the things that I'm here for is to care for other people to do ministry to other people, to love other people, that my life is not my own. It's it's about Jesus and it's about others and then myself. Paul had such, such a focus on Jesus Christ that it just spilled out in his love for what Jesus loves, which is other people. And he saw those around him as, not staying here because that's my gain, but staying here for your gain, for your joy, because I love you and I love Jesus. And... But it was a hard thing for him. 
Because he says, I'm hard-pressed, verse 23, between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that's far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. Verse 26, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus. Now what's Paul talking about there? Is he saying, because I'm so cool, you'll be able to glory in Christ Jesus. No, he says that in me As I live my life like a telescope, making Jesus look great, to live as Christ, to die as gain, when you see me, you would see Jesus. And it would be cause for you to glory in Christ Jesus. Maybe you would insert to revel in Christ Jesus and in his grace. When God's grace defines my life, I I strive to make Jesus look great in all things. To live is Christ. To die is gain. And I revel in it because it supersedes any and every other thing. Let me pray. And uh, we'll sing together and glory in Christ Jesus. Father, thanks for Jesus. And thanks for Paul. Thanks for the courage, Holy Spirit, that you gave him to endure. The, the ways that you changed his heart and his mind in such a way that you took, took a man who was um, abusive, who, who was a murderer, and you, you changed him in such a way that even while he's in the same situation, he, he wouldn't fight back, but he would, he would be in it with joy. He would choose to rejoice. He would, he would choose in, in any and every situation, Jesus, to make you look great. Holy Spirit, do that work in us. Do that work in me. To where for me, the the desire of my heart always is to make Jesus look great. Where for me to live is Christ. That that one day I would face death with no fear, knowing ultimately it's gain. I pray for, for our church too, Father. Do that work in each of us. That for for those who are sick right now that come to mind, who are facing death right now, or facing the death of a loved one, that for them, they would see that as to live as Christ, but to die as gain. I pray that Jesus would be their life. Help us to face those things without fear, but instead to let your grace define us. Father, I pray for those who've never trusted you who hear this and uh, are maybe a little confused or a little lost because they don't understand your grace. They don't understand how great it is. Holy Spirit, work in their heart in such a way that they would, they would see their sin, they would see their need, and that they would see Jesus who, who lived a perfect life for them and paid their penalty on the cross as their only way, as their only hope, their only salvation. That if they would simply repent and turn to him, Turn from their way to your way, from their life to Jesus' life, that you'd make them new, that they'd become a Christian, and maybe in a miraculous way like Paul, you'd work in their life in such a way that, that for them then, even starting today, to live would be Jesus. Father, we love you. Uh, thanks for teaching us through your word. Uh, give us your grace now to, to sing and to celebrate that grace. We pray all this through Jesus, our Savior.
Amen.